Chicago, September 20th, 1910. Hiller leaped from his bed as he heard screams from the bedroom of his daughter, Clarice, 18 years old. Taking a revolver from a drawer and followed by his wife, he rushed toward the rear of the house. In the hallway, he encountered a man. The latter saw Hiller at the same moment, and before Hiller could raise his weapon, the burglar leaped at him. A fierce struggle followed, both men seeking to shoot the other. Terrified, Mrs. Hiller sought to aid her husband and was joined by Clarice and Florence Hiller. All three of them were screaming. The robber, during the struggle, forced the battle toward the head of the stairway. Mrs. Hiller screamed to her husband to look out. It was too late. And the next moment, the intruder and Hiller, each holding onto the other with a grip of death, rolled down the stairs to the bottom. The mother and daughters watched the struggle from above. The powerful man was too much for Hiller. And finally, his hold was broken. The burglar sprang to his feet and fired his revolver. Hiller fell dead at the foot of the stairway. The next moment, the murderer leaped through an open window to the front lawn and escaped. Today, we'll be discussing the tragic murder of railroad clerk Clarence D. Hiller, Thomas Jennings, the man accused of the crime, and the advanced forensic technique used for the first time in a murder trial in the United States. I'm your host, Laura. Listen carefully because it's tough to know if what I say is fact or fiction. Ready to play? Welcome to Factor Fiction. Let's all welcome today's guest, Gina. Hi, Gina. Hi, Laura. How are you? I'm doing great. We recently met. So most of what I know about you is that you have a background in criminal justice and forensics. Yes, correct. Actually, I got my bachelor's degree in criminal justice from St. Louis University. And then I got a certificate in forensic science from there as well. Very cool. But now... In a strange twist, you own a hair salon? I do. (laughs) (laughs) And and you work there too. You're a stylist also, right? Yes. (laughs) So that's kind of an interesting combination. You want to tell me how that happened? So I guess, let's see. While I was going through college, I started a family. I wanted to be in the FBI and all that. But then I'm like, okay, that's going to take time away from my family. And throughout college, I actually worked as a receptionist in a hair salon. And I'm like, you know what, maybe I just do this instead. So I um, went to school for hairdressing. You know, I stick with my criminal justice and I'm a ID channel junkie and true crime junkie. So that's just kind of how it happened. I could definitely see how a family would play into that. I've been trying to match my um, podcast topics with my guests a little bit. And since you had the criminology and forensics background, I wanted to talk about about the first time a man was convicted of murder in the United States based on his fingerprints. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Mm -hmm. This wasn't the first conviction based on fingerprint evidence. There had been a smattering of convictions for theft since 1900. However, Jennings was the first murderer unlucky enough to leave behind a set of very clear fingerprints at the scene of the crime. Okay. Now, I'm going to back up a little bit and tell you about the history of fingerprinting as identification. And it's really fascinating. 
According to HistoryDaily.com, in the 14th century, a French doctor wrote that all fingerprints differed. And this is a quote. In 1687, a professor of anatomy named Marcello Malpighi wrote about the ridges, loops, and spirals in individual fingerprints. Even as kids, like we could look at our fingerprints and realize that they're different. Everybody's got. Yeah. Scientists continued to study fingerprints, but in 1856, Sir William Herschel, a magistrate in India, used fingerprints to identify the natives instead of signatures because, of course, these people couldn't write English and the English took over India. So that was their way of identifying them. And he recognized that everybody's fingerprints were unique. Wow, that's interesting. I know. And he collected a lot of fingerprints. And and then he pointed out that fingerprints remained the same throughout someone's life. Mm -hmm. In 1892, Sir Francis Galton, who was a cousin of Charles Darwin's, published a groundbreaking book with this amazing title, Fingerprints. Oh, original. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I guess. There's really not a better title. No mistaking what it's about. (laughs) No, exactly. So in his book, he argued that since fingerprints are unique and unchanging, that they can reliably be used to establish someone's identity. I think it's fascinating that that was only, that was 1892. So that really wasn't that long ago. No, not at all. No, I know. Especially since they'd recognized since the 14th century that they were different. And also she noticed all the sirs. There's Sir Herschel. Sir Galton. So obviously the British were involved in this. Yes. <laughs> Heavily. And then that time in that era, they were all over the world, but they did not have a monopoly on fingerprint technology. Oh, as an aside, I thought this was fascinating. Charles Darwin wasn't knighted. Did you know that? I did not know that. Apparently his work was too controversial at the time. Ah, Okay. And you said the um, other sir was his cousin? Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. Interesting. Yeah. So presumably after this man, an Argentinian policeman named Juan Vuchitek read Fingerprints, the book, he started keeping his own file of fingerprints based on Galton's system. And then these files came in very handy that same year, later that year, in 1892, a woman contacted authorities with the story that an attacker had killed her two sons and then stabbed her in the neck. There was one major piece of evidence left behind, and it was a bloody fingerprint. Now, Vukic, I can't say his name. I'm so sorry. With his knowledge of fingerprint technology, Mm -hmm. so he managed to establish a positive ID between the mother that was stabbed in the neck and the bloody fingerprint. Ah, Mm-hmm. So according to HistoryDaily.org, she eventually confessed, but Vuchitek had made the first positive identification of a murderer based on fingerprinting. Wow. Yeah. So I just said, never let it be said that a hobby is a waste of time, which harkens back to you working at the hair salon and that became your career. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't until it became easier to transfer latent fingerprints to paper that places like London's Scotland Yard starting using fingerprints to identify and catalog criminals. And this method of transferring latent fingerprints was invented by a French scientist named Paul-Jean Collier and (laughs) made it possible to transfer the prints from surfaces to paper 
using iodine fuming. Yeah, actually, I do remember learning about that. It's pretty cool. Do you remember enough to tell me about it? Because I have no idea what iodine fuming would be. I could be totally wrong, but I believe like they'll put it in a case and then the iodine will actually stick to like the oils in your fingers. And then that way you can get a good picture of what it looks like. Okay. And they do it with super glue too, I believe. Wow. Okay. As an aside, it wasn't until the early 1930s when 3M engineer Richard Drew invented scotch tape that thousands of school kids like us used it to identify fingerprints. Do you remember doing that? Like, yeah, I do actually. (laughs) Yeah. I remember thinking I was real detective, but I thought that was interesting that scotch tape was invented in the 1930s. So of course the U S couldn't be left behind Great Britain and Argentina. And they started using fingerprinting technology soon after that. Now, (laughs) this was funny. I saw maybe 10 newspaper articles with headlines basically saying that criminals might start wearing gloves when committing crimes in an effort to keep their fingerprints from corrupting the scene. So that was a huge concern. (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) But we are all surely aware of advanced fingerprint technology today, but sometimes people forget, leave their ridges and whirls exposed. In fact, criminals can sometimes be downright unthinking. And remember how I said Scotland Yard began keeping a file of criminals' fingerprints? Mm -hmm. In June of 1902, V solved a crime when a dastardly burglary happened in a house in London. The thief stole, are you ready for this? Billiard balls. What? I know. So I looked this up and actually at the time, Billiard balls would have been made of ivory. Oh, okay. That makes sense. And they could only make four or five from an entire elephant's tusk because they had to be all one piece, which is so sad. That is sad. Unfortunately for this thief, and fortunately for the billiard playing homeowners, the thief did not notice that the windowsill of the window he had used to enter the home had been freshly painted. So he left behind clear fingerprints and they were soon matched to 41-year-old former convict, Harry Jackson. So Jackson was convicted and sentenced to seven years. I think that's, I don't know, maybe the lesson is always keep your windowsills freshly painted. (laughs) Keep something tacky on them. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So that same year in 1902, the same year Harry Jackson left a painted fingerprint behind in a London household. Alphonse Bertillon, a European, I'm butchering all these names, by the way. Um, Alphonse Bertillon, a European detective who had spent the past eight years collecting fingerprints from French criminals, was consulted when a man named Joseph Rabel was found murdered. The killer had left behind a bloody print of his right hand on the window. Wow. So the whole hand. And this was fortunate that it was the right hand because Bertillon only collected fingerprints from righties. Oh, wow. Or from right. Yeah. So uh, the murderer who had apparently killed Rebel in a fit of passion when the man decided he was finished with their affair was a convict named Henry Leon Schaefer. They had his fingerprints on file. And then Schaefer confessed and Bertillon became famous. More famous. I'm going to back up a little bit and tell you more about him. Before he started collecting fingerprints, Bertillon was famous for uh, a system of body measurements that police needed to help 
to help identify criminals. And this was widely adapted. And of course, it wasn't phrenology. It was based on basic identifications, but he was the first one to record it systematically. In 1894, in an interview with Ida Tarbell, one of America's earliest investigative journalists, she said this about Bertillon. The prisoner who passes through his hands is subjected to measurements and descriptions that leave him forever spotted. He may efface his tattooing, compress his chest, dye his hair, extract his teeth, scar his body, dissimulate his height. It is useless. The record against him is unfailing. He cannot pass the Bertillon archives without recognition. And if he is at large, the relentless record may be made to follow him into every corner of the globe where there's a printing press and every man who reads may become a detective furnished with the information which will establish his identity. He is never again safe. So imagine what she would have said about people who invented CODIS. (laughs) Right. Back in the good old US of A, we were adopting fingerprint technology too. A few cities began, independently began collecting files on fingerprints. New York City collected them for their civil servants. And the St. Louis Police Department, shortly after the World's Fair of 1904, began collecting criminal fingerprints. The Army, many other police departments, and then other branches of the military began keeping them on file after that, too. Now, I hit pay dirt in my research when I found an article from the Chicago Tribune from 2020 entitled Blast from the Past, How Fingerprinting Made Chicago Famous, written by John Mark Hansen. And in it, he discusses the first time fingerprints were used to identify a murderer and convict him. Now, as you can probably guess from the introduction to today's show, which I took verbatim from the Tribune out of Seymour, Indiana, the victim interrupted a home invasion and was shot with his own revolver while trying to defend his home and family in what sounds a very chaotic scene. In echoes to the conviction of our billiard ball thief, the man who shot Hiller touched a newly painted porch railing. Oh, there you go. I know, and left behind distinctly legible prints from his left hand. So police captain Michael Evans collected the section of porch railing with the fingerprints. And then he took a photograph of it and blew it up so they could see it really well. But the police detained a person described as a winded man with his coat torn and bloody at a nearby streetcar. And additionally, the man, Thomas Jennings, carried a loaded revolver. So they arrested him. I'm going to back up a little bit and tell you about police captain Michael Evans, the man who recognized the fingerprints in the paint. Early in his career, Evans had been the Chicago police's photographer, and he was one of the first official police photographers who did the mugshots. Okay. And this is from a Hansen article, How Fingerprinting Made Chicago Famous. He said that Chicago was the second city in the world after Berlin to photograph suspects. Oh, wow. I know. I thought it was pretty amazing. And in 1884, he and his department created the Bureau of Identification which was tasked with cataloging photographs and records of identifying marks using that Bertillon system that Ida Tarbell was so impressed with. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. And also in 1904, the St. Louis World's Fair included fingerprint experts from Scotland Yard who taught the technique to police visiting the fair. One of the policemen, interestingly enough, was Captain Evan's son. So his son went down there and 
and then came home and Michael Evans, Michael Evans, the detective was like, this is cool. So um, in 1905, Captain Evans announced that he thought fingerprints were an infallible form of identification. Now, back to 1910. Once they had their suspect and the fingerprints from the scene, they, of course, took Jennings fingerprints and compared them to the ones on the porch railing. And according to the experts, they were a match. At Jennings' trial, they testified that there were 33 points of similarity on the first three fingers of the left hand between the prints on the railing and Jennings. I don't know, but I think that's a lot. That is quite a bit. Yeah. Okay. So (laughs) Jennings' lawyer was not impressed and he called the admissibility of fingerprints into question. And this is a quote from historydaily.com. The defense attorney sought to have the evidence thrown out, claiming that fingerprinting was a flawed system. In an attempt to prove it was unreliable, One of the lawyers challenged the prosecution to collect a fingerprint that proved the lawyer touched a particular piece of paper. The idea backfired on the defense lawyer Uh (laughs) when the prosecution was able to lift a very clear print from the paper and positively identify it as belonging to the lawyer. So uh, that's a Perry Mason moment if I've ever heard one, right? So not everyone was convinced, though, about the reliability of fingerprints. And even the Washington Post wrote in an editorial that if fingerprints are used to convict us, then no man's life will be safe if the courts instruct juries to regard as conclusive the testimony of partisan experts of handwriting, fingerprints, brainstorms, and such nonsense. I guess I get that. Sure. When something comes out and it's brand new, how do you know to trust it 100%? Absolutely. Right. There were fundraisers to support Jennings' appeal which made it all the way to the Illinois Supreme Court, which ruled in 1911 that, and this is a quote, standard authorities on scientific subjects discuss the use of fingerprints as a system of identification, concluding that experience has shown it to be reliable. Several prominent people did appeal to the governor for clemency, but they were unsuccessful. And Thomas Jennings was executed on February 16th in 1912. And this was such a big case for Chicago that porch railing, along with the pictures, it's still on display at the Chicago PD headquarters on South Michigan Avenue. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So for the past 111 years, prosecutors have considered fingerprints as reliable identifiers. And surprisingly, many criminals still forget to wear those gloves <laughs> that people were so worried about. And of course, now we have the even more reliable form of identification in DNA which can leave minute traces that are still identifiable years after they're collected. Yeah, the um, advances they've made in that just in the past 20 years is amazing. I know. Every technology is moving really quickly. And and maybe that's mm-hmm. part of it, too. So in 1910, that was kind of a technological boom, too. They had like the railroads were starting to make it easier to travel from place to place. Cities were booming. There was industrialization on a huge scale. They just had the radio come out. There were a lot of technology. And and I think sometimes when there's those booms in technology, we become a little more skeptical of them. Sure, because it all seems to happen at once, but it's not necessarily happening at once. I feel like sometimes I'm when I you know tell Alexa to do something <laughs> that and it's like I'm living in the Harry Potter world where I'm a wizard. I can just make things happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was thinking of the St. Louis World's Fair in 1904 was a huge 
technological boom. They had everything there. It's just amazing. It really was. Yeah. And actually, I think the Missouri History Museum in St. Louis, they have a display of the World's Fair setup. That's very cool. I would recommend checking it out if you haven't. Yeah. But yeah, that was neat. And then also the Chicago, the Chicago World's Fair of 1894, I think, was a pretty big one, too. All right. So now I didn't tell you at the beginning. Do you know how to play fact or fiction? Uh, I think you're going to give me four scenarios and I got to pick which one. Uh, fiction. That's right. Yeah. OK, so we're going to pause real quick for a word from our sponsor and then we'll be back to play fact or fiction. Hi there. I love chocolate candy. I mean, who doesn't? Sadly, my mom jeans don't let me indulge as often as I'd like. So when I do treat myself, I want to make it an experience. That's why I'm so excited to tell you all about Bell Toffee. Bell Toffee is high quality toffee encased in decadent chocolate. Each piece is handcrafted according to Aunt Ida Bell's secret family recipe. And it's guaranteed to deliver its signature toffee crush. My all-time favorite is their dark chocolate hazelnut espresso, but their new bourbon pecan toffee is a close second. You can go to belltoffee.com to place an order to experience the toffee crush yourself. That's B-E-L-L-E-T-O-F-F-E-E.com. I promise you'll want to make Bell Toffee your own special snack indulgence. All right. Welcome back. Gina says she's ready to play fact or fiction. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. All right. So, Gina, choice number one. In 1892, Francis Galton, who was a cousin of Charles Darwin's, published a groundbreaking book entitled Fingerprints. To be clear, the fiction on that is that he's a cousin of Charles Darwin's. He did actually publish this book. Okay. Okay. Choice number two, Alphonse Bertillon a European detective who had spent the past eight years collecting fingerprints from French criminals only collected right-hand fingerprints. So the right-hand fingerprints is the fiction there. Okay. Bertillon actually did collect fingerprints. Okay. In 1904, the St. Louis World's Fair included fingerprint experts from Scotland Yard who taught the technique to police visiting the fair. True. But the fiction may be one of those policemen was... Michael, Captain Michael Evans of Chicago's son. And the fourth one, the fourth possible fiction is the porch railing with Jennings fingerprints is still displayed with a picture of Captain Michael Evans at the Chicago PD headquarters on South Michigan Avenue. Okay. All right. Wow. That's a tough one. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So we have, um, the 1892 book, Fingerprints, mm-hmm. Charles Darwin's cousin. Mm-hmm. And then the second one, we have the Italian guy with the right sure. hand. I think he's French, but. Oh, okay. And then the next one is the World's Fair with mm-hmm. the Michael Evans' son, the detective, brought mm-hmm. back the stuff he learned about fingerprints from the world's fair. Mm-hmm. No, he did. Somebody did bring that back, but was it his son or not? That's the fiction. And then the last one, Jenny's fingerprints are still on display. Mm-hmm. Okay. And now I need to decide which one is fiction. Huh? Oh my goodness. Let's go with 
I don't know. Let's go with number three, Michael Evans. Only because that's a big coincidence, maybe. I actually, I thought that was a coincidence too, but that is true. So, <laughs> yeah. So actually the story behind that is interesting. So initially, uh, Michael Evans offhandedly is like, go check it out and see what you think, son. And then his son came back and was super excited about it. And Francis Galton was actually a cousin of Charles Darwin's. Okay. And Bertillon, Bertillon, whatever, only collected fingerprints from right, right hands. So that's true. Is it? Isn't that crazy? That is. All those things were just unbelievable. And then the porch railing I made, that's the one I made up that it's still on display. Wow. You would think that totally would be a thing that it would. I know. And that's what I thought too. It's all sorts of different things from history, you know? Right. And it might be on display somewhere, but I don't know. What if it is really, I just made this up, but it could actually be there. That would be bad. But I made that up. So I don't think that's true. There might be a display of, I don't know. I have never been to the Chicago police headquarters, but they, it is actually on South Michigan Avenue. That, that part of it's true. But yeah, I, I thought this was an interesting case. And it's funny because initially I wasn't going to cover it. And mm-hmm. then you mentioned that you had the criminology background. I was like, oh, yeah, that could be fun. Yeah, definitely. interesting. Yeah, because the murder itself is pretty straightforward. But what's interesting, I think, about this one is the fingerprinting technology and how it was just used for the first time. That's all I have. Any last words you want to say or anything? Or I mean, I had a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. This has been fun. It's been good to meet you. Yeah. Yeah. Nice to meet you too. I had a lot of fun. Bye. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Fact or Fiction. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to Fact or Fiction podcast on your preferred podcast platform and like the Fact or Fiction Facebook page. I post movies and fun facts and just random neat stuff that I think you'll enjoy. I've also posted pictures and my source information for this podcast on www.factorfictionpodcast.com. I'll be back in two weeks with a unique twist on Factor Fiction featuring a special guest. So tune in then. And until that time, listen carefully because it is not easy to tell what's fact or fiction. Goodbye.